And we're going to begin our time together by reading through verses 13 to 19. Mark chapter 3, 13 to 19. Verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, the sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So this section is all about the apostles of Christ. And we've spent two weeks looking at this passage already. So let me just make a, a few, or take a few moments to summarise what we've discovered to this point. Firstly, we've seen their appointment by Christ. It was an appointment that declared the deity of Christ. He was gathering the twelve around him as did God, gathered the twelve tribes of Israel around his presence in the tabernacle of Moses' day. Can't miss that. It showed that Christ was bringing about the new and greater exodus than in Moses' day. And it also showed that Christ was establishing the new covenant community as a community not by race as in Moses' day, but for anyone who entered by grace alone through faith in him alone. Secondly, we saw their assignment from Christ, and this included two aspects. The first part of that task was simply to be with him, so that they might learn from him, so that they might see perfect righteousness and godliness, so that they might be discipled by him. The second part of their task was to go and preach and perform miracles that would vindicate the message. We see in this the apostles were made Christ's authoritative representatives. Now in the Gospels they are apostles and yet they are still learners, they are disciples. But when we get to the book of Acts we see their supreme authority as Christ's authoritative representatives. Now, as we've talked about, there are those who claim that apostles are active in the church today. There is, as I've mentioned, the International Coalition of Apostolic Leaders in which you can join up as an apostle for an annual fee or get it discounted if you're married. But if you don't feel that you're quite at the level of apostle just yet, you could join, for instance, the International Strategic Alliance of Apostolic Churches, or the Isaac Network for short. Now, one of the purposes of this ministry, and I use that term very lightly, is, and I quote, we are hoping to help the senior pastors to move from pastoral function to apostolic function in their local churches. We are challenging the senior pastors to raise up other pastors around them to build a team ministry in the local church. When they reach this point of maturity in ministry... 
We will impart to them through the laying on of hands that which is necessary for them to break into other dimension of ministry and gifting. Okay. And how might they help you to do that? Well, they list the requirements of joining the Isaac family. Let me just give you a couple of those. Every Isaac pastor must first be drawn by the Holy Spirit towards the relationship with the presiding apostle, who, by the way, resides in Malaysia and is a man by the name of Dr. Jonathan David. So you must be drawn by the Holy Spirit toward a relationship with this presiding apostle. Every Isaac pastor must desire this relationship to become the primary source, leading to a relationship of spiritual fathering. Every Isaac pastor must be drawn to the purity of the prophetic and preceding word and also the life of the apostle. Every Isaac pastor values the vertical relationship with the apostle as their father as well as the horizontal relationships towards one another as brothers, sons of the same father. Now, I mention the Isaac Network specifically because there are churches within our own region of Gippsland that have submitted themselves to this self-professed apostle and prophet. So this is not just something that's happening far off. This is within our own neighbourhood. But as we saw last time, The Bible outlines three specific qualifications for apostleship. Number one, you had to be personally commissioned by Christ himself. Number two, you had to be able to verify your authority with the performance of miraculous signs. And number three, you had to be an eyewitness to the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And not merely in a vision or a dream, but an eyewitness of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And these qualifications mean there have been no apostles past the end of the first century. No one can meet those qualifications. There are only the 12, with Matthias replacing Judas and Christ's special appointment of Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles. So who were these men? We've seen their appointment We've seen their assignment, but what were their attributes? Who were they? What were they like? Why these men? What can we learn about them in the scriptures? What can we learn about the gracious work of God in studying their lives? What does that say about how God will work in our lives? How do their responses and actions inform us and teach us what it means to live for Christ? And for the glory of God. As I was preparing for this message, I started out with a plan to simply glean a few summary points that would encapsulate all these questions for us. But I began thinking, well, when was the last time I heard a message in church that helped us to understand the the personal attributes of the apostles of the Lord? Was the last time I was led through the scriptures to learn about the 12? Who were they? What did they do? These 12 who were the foundation of God's church. And then I thought, oh, that's right, never. Now, I don't know if that's been your experience, but that's certainly been mine. And I think that's part of the problem why many people become enamoured with these self-appointed apostles today. Because they don't know what the real thing is. And so when the fakes present themselves 
They don't have knowledge of the real thing to compare and contrast and cast off. I'm sure you've probably heard the illustration many times before of how bank tellers don't learn to spot counterfeit money by first studying the counterfeits. No, they begin by studying genuine currency until they know what the real thing is. And it's true. And it's such a valuable picture for how important it is for Christians to study God's word so they can discern when they see or hear something that goes awry. And while that's significant for any aspect of doctrine, it rings especially true right now when thinking about the apostles of the Lord. So we're going to take our time. We're going to look at these men whom Christ has chosen to be the foundation of the church. Over the next few weeks, we'll see what the scriptures say about each one. And if I can recommend a a helpful resource to you at the outset, uh, it would be a book called 12 Ordinary Men. 12 Ordinary Men. It was written by John MacArthur, who is perhaps the greatest expository preacher of the past 40 years. Uh, This book came out of sermons that he preached when he went through Matthew's Gospel, and then 20 years later when he went through Luke's Gospel. Sermons on each of the apostles, which were in-depth character studies of these men. Now, there are four lists of the apostles' names in the New Testament. Here in Mark chapter 3, in Matthew 10, in Luke chapter 6, and then in Acts chapter 1. So Luke gives us two lists as he wrote a gospel account and the book of Acts. In John's gospel account, he doesn't give us a complete list of the apostles' names, but he mentions some of the names of the apostles in their interactions with Jesus, although he doesn't mention them all. Now, obviously, the scriptures teach us more about some of these men than others, and so we won't be dealing with one man per sermon. However, there is one who we've spoken of a great deal, and so this morning our focus will be solely on him, and that, of course, is the Apostle Peter. Mark chapter 3, verse 16. He appointed the twelve. And whose name is listed first? Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. Now, Simon Peter's name heads all the lists of the apostles found in the New Testament. In Mark chapter 1, Simon and his brother Andrew and their fellow fishermen, James and John, were called by Jesus to become fishers of men. But this was not their first encounter with Jesus, because in John chapter 1, we are told that Simon was first brought to Jesus by his brother Andrew. Now we'll save looking at that episode for when we think about the apostle Andrew, but for the moment let's just acknowledge that Mark and John emphasize that Simon is right by Jesus' side from the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Now, there are two episodes where Jesus calls Peter, Andrew, James and John by the Sea of Galilee. Though in the second, we're not quite sure if Andrew was there. The first is mentioned in Mark chapter 1. It's here that Jesus says to them in verse 17, Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. It's an intensified call to discipleship than what happened when... Simon Peter first met Jesus in John chapter 1. 
But while they follow, it's not at this point that they give up their day jobs. Just note the language of Jesus. I will make you. Right? That's future tense. So Mark 1 is the first call of Jesus by the sea. The second is found in Luke chapter 5. So just turn with me to Luke 5. Luke 5 and Mark 1 are not recording the same event. Mark 1 happened earlier and then we see what happened in Luke chapter 5. Now this encounter on the Sea of Galilee ends in verse 10 with Jesus declaring, from now on you will be catching men. This is present tense. This is the moment they start being with Jesus full time. But how did that come about? Well, here we're told that Jesus hopped into Simon's boat so he could continue to preach to the crowds who had gathered on the shore. Then what happens? Verse 4, And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. He told Jesus it was a fruitless task as they'd been at it all night and hadn't caught a thing. But there is this beautiful picture of obedience when Simon declared, but at your word, I will let down the nets. It's a wonderful picture of submission. Simon saying, I don't get what you're doing, but because you're the one who says it, I will do it. Do we respond to Christ's word like that? When we read the scriptures and we come across something that God tells us we should be doing or we should not be doing, even if we don't get it, or even if the culture around us is doing otherwise, even perhaps if other Christians are doing otherwise, do we respond with humble obedience to the word of Christ? Later, Jesus would tell the disciples, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so our obedience to Christ is a sign of our love for him. We obey him, not out of fear, but because we love him. And of course, we know that this is not a human work either, right? What does the Apostle John say? 1 John four nineteen. we love because he first loved us. For everything God commands of his people, he provides the grace to obey. And so that's exactly what Simon displayed here. You said it, I'll do it. And what happens next is extraordinary. There's a miracle. Where there was no fish, there are many. So many, they called over James and John to help haul in the load. But more extraordinary than the miracle of the fish is the response of Simon Peter. He said to Jesus, verse 8, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. By God's grace, the miracle of the fish became a sign pointing to the identity of Jesus. And as he saw the glory and the power of Christ, Simon saw even more acutely the sinfulness of his own nature. You know, many people saw Jesus' miracles, but they did not respond and recognize them as signs. They did not then submit to Jesus as Lord and Saviour. 
But Simon's actions here show us the right response to Jesus. Humbly confessing our sin and acknowledging him as Lord. And the Lord was merciful, just as he will be merciful to all who respond like Simon. Now Simon was given a new name by Jesus. This happened right back at that first encounter in John chapter 1. When Andrew brought Simon to Jesus, we read in verse 42 that Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Cephas is an Aramaic word, which is the language that Jesus and the disciples spoke in, conversed in. While Peter is a Greek word, the language the New Testament was written in. And Cephas and Peter both mean rock. And in calling Simon by the name Peter, Jesus is setting up what Simon would become, a rock, a foundation. And we see this happening throughout the gospel accounts. Peter is the most prominent of the 12 apostles. He's the spokesman. He's with Jesus in the most significant moments, like the transfiguration. It was Peter who asked Jesus to call him out of the boat and to walk on the water. The biggest moment is seen when Jesus asked the disciples who they thought he was. Just turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Here Jesus asks, the disciples, who all the other people are saying who Jesus is? He turns to the disciples and says, but who do you say that I am? Matthew 16, verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And what's Jesus' response from verse 17? Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So, right there, we see again the sovereign work of God. Simon Peter was only enabled to make that declaration because God gave him that direct revelation. In his own strength, his own power, he would not have been able to understand. Only God's sovereign grace enabled that. Jesus continues, verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now various suggestions have been put forth as to what the rock is that Jesus will build his church upon, such as Peter's confession of Christ, or perhaps Christ himself. But really, these suggestions would not have come about if it were not for the Roman Catholic Church twisting this verse to get the idea of apostolic succession and the position of the Pope. The simplest way to understand this verse is that the rock on which Jesus will build his church is the one that he has named the rock. That is Peter. And the meaning of this is seen clearly in the book of Acts as Peter continues to be the chief spokesman. And throughout Acts, 
more significantly, it's Peter who preaches on the day of Pentecost after the disciples were baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then it's Peter who is there when the Samaritans are baptized with the Holy Spirit in Acts 8. And then in Acts 10, when the Gentiles are baptized with the Holy Spirit too, it comes after Peter's preaching. In these episodes, we see a direct fulfillment of the exercising of the keys of the kingdom. But Peter is a representative of the apostles as a whole. In Matthew 18, when Jesus speaks to the disciples about church discipline, the same language of binding and loosing is not simply Peter's prerogative, but it's spoken to all the disciples. Indeed, it's the responsibility and authority of the church as a whole. And Peter is not elevated with a greater title than the other apostles either. He is an apostle like the others. As Paul says in Ephesians 2.20, the household of God is what? Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now the apostles as a group were the foundation, not simply Peter. But nevertheless, Peter is the chief or representative apostle. We recognise him as the first among equals. He had a quality with the other apostles, but he also was the one through whom direction was given. And you know, that really sets the precedent for how leadership in the church was to continue after the apostles. The church is to be led by a group of spiritually qualified and mature men known as the elders. In the New Testament, we see that the word elder is used interchangeably with the words overseer and pastor. All three terms pointing to different aspects of the one position. So an elder is a pastor, as a pastor is an overseer, as an overseer is an elder. But while local churches are to be led by a plurality of elders, each with the same standing, we see that there is scope for acknowledging a first among equals. In 1 Timothy 5.17, Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honour, especially those who labour in preaching and teaching. So just as Peter was the first among equals, the lead apostle, so in the eldership there is also clearly a first among equals. And similarly, as Peter had no higher standing among the other apostles, neither does the the pastor of the word have a higher standing among his other pastors, for they're equally pastors. They're equally elders. They're equally overseers. But the logic is simple, right? If everyone leads in different directions, we don't go anywhere. So it's clear that Peter displayed this leadership within the 12. But sometimes the qualities needed to lead others in a positive way can also be the same qualities that lead that person into trouble. A person who possesses an inward enthusiastic drive can also end up regularly putting their foot in it if they're not careful. And throughout the gospel accounts, we see that Peter suffered from a severe case of foot-in-mouth disease. That happened at the Mount of Transfiguration, didn't it? 
when Peter witnessed the glory of Christ and he saw Moses and Elijah and he put his foot in it by offering to build booths to stay in that moment rather than proceed to the glorification that would come through the cross. But that wasn't the first time he'd done that. If you're still in Matthew 16, we'll see. After Peter made that stunning declaration of Jesus' identity by the grace of God, and then Jesus affirms the role that Peter would play, Jesus then goes straight into explaining that as the Christ, as the Messiah, he had come to die and to be raised to life on the third day. And what happens? Verse 22, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. He could not fathom that the long-awaited Messiah was going to his death. Surely not. And then Jesus' response, verse 23, But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And the word translated as hindrance means obstacle or stumbling block. And so the rock on which Christ would build his church is now acting as a rock to hinder Christ's work. Now the other major stumble in the Gospels was when Peter and his boldness and brashness these statements in the upper room that he would never leave jesus side even if it meant his death but peter's denial of jesus three times was a very humbling experience just think of the way that jesus restored him after the resurrection when jesus sat with peter on the beach and and asked him three times whether he loved him The life of Peter is certainly a picture of transformation from rashness to responsibility. God's work in his life is clear testimony to how God graciously grows his people into maturity. Even though the book of Acts shows the supreme authority of the apostles, nevertheless there are moments as well where God is still revealing his plan to them, enabling them to see the full glory of the new covenant and in this god continues to build true humility into peter as well you remember in acts chapter 10 peter received a vision from the lord with the the different animals being let down before him in this this great sheet animals that were clean and also others that were unclean by jewish standards and then peter is told to rise and kill and eat And Peter's left dumbfounded that God would command such a thing. But it happens three times. And then Peter is disturbed by a knock at the door, men asking him to come and visit the Gentile centurion Cornelius. Of course, we know what happens. Peter goes, preaches the gospel, kind of reluctantly. But then those who believe the message, God baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And Peter is forced to recognise that God is welcoming Gentiles into the church as well. It's a community of faith, not of race. And the baptism with the Spirit is undeniable evidence. 
That is a humbling experience for Peter. But it is a sign of God's gracious work in his life that he is open to the Lord's leading. After this time, however, there is the incident the Apostle Paul speaks about in his letter to the Galatians. Men from Jerusalem had arrived in Antioch and had begun teaching about the need for Gentile believers to observe the Jewish law to be saved. And Peter, probably in uh, in order to protect his fellow Jews uh, from persecution, he started removing himself from table fellowship with the Gentiles in the church. And Paul publicly rebuked Peter for being hypocritical because he himself had not been observing the Jewish food and cleanliness laws. Peter Peter had been there for weeks or longer and was eating with everybody. Now this, by the way, doesn't diminish the supreme authority of the apostles because only an apostle had authority to rebuke a fellow apostle. But it did show the importance of leadership Because Galatians 2.13 says that the rest of the Jews, including Barnabas, followed Peter's lead. And we wonder at times why the requirements for leadership in the church are so high. Well, what then happened? Peter humbly responded to Paul's rebuke. Acts 15 records the events of the Jerusalem Council where Peter and Paul both then attended. And Peter publicly affirmed that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone and there was no animosity in between these two apostles there could have been but peter had become a man who was willing to humbly serve his lord proverbs 9 verse 8 do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Peter wonderfully illustrated that. And we see this in the first two letters that he wrote in the New Testament as well. In 1 Peter, he opens with these beautiful words. 1 Peter 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, Peter also believed in the sovereignty of God for salvation. Peter knew that he was only a child of God by the grace of God. Jesus had told him straight up in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Peter lived by grace and he called the believers to recognize that it is only by God's grace that they live too. But we are never to presume upon God's grace. A life saved by grace is a life empowered by grace to love Christ and obey his commandments. That's why Peter says in chapter 1 of his second letter, That by God's grace, we have been granted everything we need for life and godliness. And therefore, he goes on, verse 5, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, 
and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. We see more of the transformation in Peter's life when he teaches the churches that he writes to about humility. In 1 Peter 5, he begins by addressing the elders, saying to them, verses 1 to 3, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And then he speaks to the wider church, saying in verse 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humility and leadership, humility in submission. Humility is a trait that every member of the church is called to demonstrate. Working at this by the power of the indwelling spirit through the grace of God. And of course, the greatest example of humility is Christ Jesus himself, is it not? He who humbled himself to the point of death to save his people from their sins. Peter's life and his teaching are a testament to God's loving care in the way that he moulds each one of his people to be more like Christ. People who are mature in the faith and humble in life. And why should we listen to Peter? Well, turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter chapter 1 from verse 16 Peter reminds us that he was an eyewitness of the glory of Christ now in this instance he was referring to that moment on the Mount of Transfiguration he's saying listen to me because I was there because I saw Christ's glory with my own eyes and I heard with my own ears the voice of God who declared this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. But however great that experience was, listen to what he says from verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so we see that scripture trumps experience. The apostles' supreme authority is now vested in the New Testament writings, which in connection to the Old Testament is the completely truthful, trustworthy and sufficient revelation from God. God. The validity of the apostles' witness and writing 
were affirmed by the miracles they performed. Just read the book of Acts and you'll see. Now that the canon of scripture is closed, closed, there is no further need for miraculous signs to validate the teaching. We have a sufficient revelation. And if there were people capable of doing miracles today, we have to understand that they would be there to validate their message. But would God be validating teaching that is contradictory to his word? No. Would he be validating lifestyles that are contradictory to his standards of godliness? No. Now, to be sure, God still works providentially today, such as in in healing people in answer to prayer. But that's not the same thing as as people having the power to, to speak to a quadriplegic and see the man stand up, or to walk down into a hospital morgue and raise the dead. And by the way, if people did have that gift today, then why are they waiting for the sick people to come to their well-rehearsed stage shows rather than just driving to the closest cancer ward and clearing the room? Peter's words here show us that when we read the scripture, we have the full assurance that it is God's word to us. And in it, we have everything everything we need for life and godliness now there is much more we could say about peter but from all that's been said we can see clearly that he was a man who was touched by god's grace he was a man who truly loved the lord jesus and exuberantly desired to be more like him before leaving peter It would be good for us to remember that the man who denied Christ three times was the man who, by unanimous tradition of the early church, died as a martyr, bringing to fulfilment his words to Jesus that he would willingly lay down his life for him and Jesus' own words to Peter that he would do just that. When Jesus rebuked Peter for being a stumbling block, the next words we read, In Matthew 16, Jesus declared, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This charge is to all people, but it's exemplified by the Apostle Peter. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that every time we open your word, we have assurance that it is true and trustworthy, that we need not seek elsewhere for understanding of who you are. There can be confirmation of that, but in the canon of scripture, you have revealed yourself clearly to us. And Father, we thank you for the opportunity to spend today looking at one of the apostles who were the foundation of your church. We thank you for the life of Peter. We thank you for uh, the experiences that he had and for the way that we can see your grace at work in his life, how you grew him to maturity and how you grew him to be 
a wonderful leader of your church. May we not seek to hold ourselves to the same uh, authority of Peter as an apostle, but may we seek to um, follow his example, seeking to be humble when we read your word and to seek by your grace to grow in maturity. And we thank you that all those things that you call us to, you provide the grace we need to obey. Thank you for the life of Peter and we pray that as we look at these apostles of Christ over the next few weeks, you would strengthen each one of us and encourage us in the way you work in your people. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.